Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Oh, you know, I've just been uh, out hiking in the wilderness, and you won't believe what I saw. I really won't. Footprints. <laughs> And a big hairy creature. Ah. But just turned out that someone was looking up photos of you during the pandemic oh, on their phone. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um yeah, I was actually the footprints, the hairy creature, that's all believable. I found it difficult to believe that you were out hiking uh, <laughs> during the pandemic here. Yeah. <laughs> I I when was the last time we left the house? When it, besides, like, grocery shopping? Uh-huh. Um. Grocery shopping, moving, and helping other people move. Those have been our, like, primary outside-the-house activities. We've gone for walks around yes. the neighborhood. That's true. How are you, Ben? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Based on the tale you tell about your hike, um, I think I can guess what this week's movie's about. Yetis. <laughs> That's right. Hey, did we ever find out if it's if the plural is yetis or just yeti? It seems to be ambiguous. Right. I probably because it's not an English word that's and it's just been like adapted into English. Yeah. Yeah. So last week, at the end of last week's episode on Gojira, I said we were watching um a British movie about Yetis. Yeah. Uh, this isn't a British movie. This is an American movie. Oh. Um, so this is the... You lied? I... No. I was... I did not you lie. You were misinformed. I was wrong. I made a mistake. It's big of you to admit that. I will admit that I made a mistake far sooner than I would ever say that I lied. I, I don't lie. I do make mistakes. You're like a Vulcan. Right. Okay, back on track. So this is The Snow Creature from 1954, and the reason why I thought it was British is this movie kicked off sort of a little mini trend of Yeti movies for a while in the mid-1950s, and I was thinking of 1957's The Abominable Snowman, starring Peter Cushing, which is a British film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But this is an American film. So, seeing that there was this trend of Yeti movies in the mid-50s, and, you know, we haven't gotten any up till now, although ape men have certainly been a... Running threat. Long-standing, yes. Um, <laughs> I was curious to find out, like, why it was people were suddenly so excited about Yetis in, like, 1954. Um, so I kind of sent you off on... An expedition. That's right. You came back with footprints. Uh, anything else? Um, scalps. Okay, I'm worried about you now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me explain. Um, For clarity's sake, Mm -hmm. there are many uh, ape-like creatures wandering the wilderness kind of legends. Right, a lot of different, like, 
folklorically similar monsters. Yeah, so today we'll be talking about the Yeti, um, based in the Himalayas. There's also the uh, Chuchuna in Siberia, Sasquatch in Canada, right? Um, slash the States. But, you know, we're just looking at the... Yeah, yeah. We The Sasquatch, a.k.a. Bigfoot, in North America is a distinct man-ape cryptid from the Yeti, a.k.a. Abominable Snowman, in Tibet. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The word Yeti comes from the Tibetan word... Yate. Okay. Which kind of means, like, rocky bear. Like, rocky place bear. Okay. And it has some other names as well, including uh, Mite, uh, man bear. Okay. Across several Himalayan indigenous tribes, um, many of them have beliefs around an ape-like being in mm. the wilderness. The Lepcha people worshipped a um, glacier being. Okay, sure. Um, and some other tribes considered this cryptid as, you know, king of the hunt. Sure. Um, and in all cases, this creature is ape-like, usually carrying a weapon, like a large stone, and you hear a whistling swoosh sound whenever he comes around. Okay. Um, now, the first recorded account of a sighting comes in 1832 when um, mountaineer B.H. Hudson was in North Nepal and along with local guides they saw a tall bipedal creature with long dark hair um, and when this creature came across this expedition it fled. Dark hair? Dark hair. Okay. Yeah. In my head Yeti have like white hair. They look like in my head, they look like the Wampa from Empire Strikes Back. Sure. Also in my mind is um, the abominable snowman in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The Bumble. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like in my mind, the Yeti is like the polar bear to Sasquatch's grizzly bear, <laughs> you know? Sure. Well, what's interesting with the Yeti is these legends are kind of across Tibet along the Himalayas, and... You know, you can get up into the Himalayas where there's snow, but a lot of Tibet is just, like, really high up highlands. Sure. For lack of a better word. Like, these rolling hills where it's not always snowy. Gotcha. So so what you're saying is that, like, Yeti are not, are, like, part of that part of Tibet as well. They're not just up at, like, Mount the upper first. reaches. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And when you say, like, first recorded sighting, you mean, like, by a Westerner. Presumably. Yes, that's a good distinction. Um, it seemed to me that any time that a sighting was recorded by a local, it was more word of mouth mm, rather yeah. than like a written record. But there are um, like drawings and documentation in like monasteries or temples. Yeah, and you know, the difference between oral tradition versus written tradition, you know, doesn't necessarily give more official status to one over the other. Yeah. Um, the reason I bring up this 1832 uh, account is this is the first time that it, this cryptid is um, being talked about in the West. Absolutely, yeah. Um, specifically Europe. Mm -hmm. um, given the creature's uh, darker hair, like it was like a brown-red kind of thing, 
Um, Hodgson thought it was an orangutan. Okay, sure. Uh, orangutans don't live up in Tibet. Yeah. They only live in jungles. I could see how he got there, though. Yeah. But I just thought I would put it out there. Fair. Um, the next, uh, account from a Westerner is, uh, 1899, when some footprints were found by mountaineer Lawrence Waddell. When he pointed out the footprints, his guide said that they would have come from a large ape-like creature. Uh, Waddell thought maybe a, a bear walking on its hind legs. Sure. I think I've heard, like, the idea of, like, a bear with mange as being, like, a common explanation for Sasquatch. Yeah. The term, the label, Abominable Snowman, was first coined in 1921 by a Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Burry. And he was leading the 1921 British Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition. But again, he only found footprints. Um, His guides described the creature as a wild man of the snows. Okay. um, Using the words meto kongami, translated as man-bear snowman. Okay. So... um, Howard Burry took some uh, artistic license and came up with Abominable Snowman. And he put this story into newspapers and everything, so this is really when it becomes part of the popular consciousness of, like, a, a ape-like beast in the snows. Right. So there's continued sightings, mainly around finding footprints during the 1930s to 40s. The first picture comes in 1937 from Frank Smythe, um, getting the very first photo. Of the footprints. Of the, f- yes. Right. Very first photo of the footprints. In 1951, mountaineer Eric Shipton took photos of these footprints while on an expedition to climb Mount Everest. Um, and these were probably, like, the first publicized photos. Right, and here we're in 1951, so we're getting kind of closer to our era here. Exactly. Now, these footprints were heavily contested, it showed, you know, the, the photo that he took had a, a pickaxe next to it. Um, the foot was the length of the pickaxe blade, and there's like three large toes. Gotcha. So yeah, so the, the reason the footprints are a big deal then is, you know, like Bigfoot, they're large. Yeah. Yeah. They big. Yeah. Um, part of what was contested about these photos, or rather these footprints, is... People weren't sure if it was, like, a normal footprint that, due to the wind or melting snow kind of erosion, made it look larger. Yeah, you would definitely, like, get that if you had a footprint that, like, you know, the snow melts because of the heat from the foot that impressed in the snow. Mm -hmm. The other thing about, like, Yeti footprints that I always think about is, you know, you see these pictures where, yeah, you see, like, the perfect shape of, like, the sole of the foot and then like the toe imprints and I think about like when I walk through snow I very rarely like put my foot directly vertically down and then lift it directly vertically back up to step again like I usually trudge right yeah so you kind of lift up and through the snow absolutely in 1953 there was another expedition um this time to climb Mount Everest and this was with explorer, mountaineer, Sir Edmund Hillary, and his guide, Tenzing Norgay. These are the first explorers to actually reach the top of Mount Everest, 
And during their expedition, they found evidence of the Yeti. Again, mm-hmm. more footprints, things like that. They would return to Mount Everest in the Himalayas in 1960 to look specifically for physical evidence of the Yeti. Mm. But we're not there yet. We're not in 1960. Now, with climbing and reaching the summit of Mount Everest, like you get a lot of publicity, and then you start talking about the Yeti. So there's a ton of publicity about all of this. So much so that the UK tabloid Daily Mail... Still a bastion of um, accurate and unbiased... Integrity. That's right. Um, they decided to sponsor a snowman expedition in 1954, specifically to find evidence of the Yeti. And this was led by mountaineer John Jackson. Mm. So Jackson, he's there, he's looking, he finds footprints... Just the consistent thing that everyone's finding. But he also finds what is supposedly a Yeti scalp at the Pingbotch Monastery. He took back uh, a sample of this scalp. Now, the sample, when analyzed by Professor Frederick Wood Jones, um, he compared the hairs to um, bears or orangutans, kind of the the two creatures that people are like, oh, it's not a Yeti, it's these things. Right, right. And he confirmed that the hairs weren't from a bear, they weren't ape hair, but these hairs aren't from a scalp. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so he's like, oh, this isn't a scalp, but I don't know what these hairs are from. Right, so this is, so the monastery has like, the Yeti scalp as like a relic or something in it, and he took like hairs from it. Yeah, like a sample of it. Right, yeah. Um, So they've got, like, this scalp just kind of sitting there in this monastery. So it's probably something constructed, like hairs taken from somewhere else on some animal and then, like, sewn together to be a scalp. Yeah. Right. So that's where the scalps come in. Mm. Um, As of 1954, the evidence that people have of a yeti amounted to many, many footprints the scalp and hairs um, and rumored sightings. Right. And so it's sort of a time where you have a lot of publicity around this. And, you know, there's enough publicity that, you know, newspapers are sending out guys. It strikes me as like kind of at the time being one of those things where it's like, oh, the coin could fall either way on this as to whether it exists or it doesn't. Yeah. Right. Whereas I feel like today in 2020, we're probably faster to file the Yeti under fictional, you know, for the most part. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think um, you hear people all the time going exploring for Sasquatch and Bigfoot. Yeah, but I mean, I would say that, like, the average person, right, polled would be like, yeah, those things are fake. And, like, similar to Sasquatch Bigfoot, like, People go out all the time. They never find anything. There's been multiple, like, Bigfoot Sasquatch things that have been, like, later proven to be definitely hoaxes, even if the overall thing hasn't been proven to be that. I'm just saying that, like, it strikes me from what you're saying in the 50s that there was a lot more, like, legitimate, at the time, belief, like, oh, maybe this is a thing. Yeah. 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 A lot less of the, um... Cynicism? (laughs) I was going to say a lot less of, like, the kind of... Skepticism? Smell of pseudoscience. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You know, over it? Yeah, for the record, um, I kind of lean more towards, like, at least with the Yeti. Mm. Probably not. Like, a Sasquatch in, like, a 
thick jungle, sure, maybe, but um, in Tibet, where there's just a lot of open plains, to the point where you see how it, like, changes how they hunt mm. things, like, a large creature going unseen for that long, or, like, unproven. Yeah. yeah, the Sasquatch has the advantage of, like, it supposedly lives in, like, the Rocky Mountains and, like, in the forests and stuff, where it's, like... Oh, you could never conclusively hunt through all of that, right? Yeah. My thing with a lot of similar things to the Yeti is I always kind of put my money on the original indigenous word describes something real, right? That that word, you know, exists for them to describe something. And Westerners come in, they misunderstand what that something is... Like, they misunderstand the word or the concept that it's referring to. Kind of make up in their heads their idea of what this word is referring to. And then that evolves off to become its own separate thing from whatever it originally was. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe in the beginning it was describing, you know, just some kind of... Fucked up bear. Yeah, fucked up bear that, like, lives in the area. Well, a lot of the direct translations go to bear. Right, which isn't ape. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I I think, you know, what you get is you get, like, someone going like, okay, well, they're using this word that means man-bear, so I guess that's an ape? Yeah. Right? And then the next thing you know, you've got the bumble. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's 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 interesting. I, I definitely lean towards the Yeti as imagined in... Western culture not being a thing, but probably refers to something that did exist or does exist, but like now is a completely sort of different thing. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But that at least explains why we've got all these Yeti movies here in the mid-50s. It was like the hot new thing. Yeah. So the snow creature is the first of the movies to jump on this Yeti trend. You know, it's made here in 1954, was, like, shot, conceived, written, released, all in, like, the back half of 1954. Um, So really, like, strike while the iron's hot kind of thinking. Uh, The producer and director here is William Lee Wilder, who was born in Austria-Hungary in 1904 and was the older brother of the more famous writer-director Billy Wilder. Okay. Uh, so Billy Wilder, you know, being responsible for movies like Ninochka, Double Indemnity, The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard, Stalag 17, Sabrina, The Seven Year Itch, Spirit of St. Louis, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment. Big deal guy, right? And when their family first came to the United States um, after Hitler rose to power in Germany, the elder brother, who went by W. Lee Wilder, Uh, initially worked in New York um, as a maker of purses and handbags. Okay. And it was after his younger brother, Billy Wilder, kind of hit critical mass with his successes in Hollywood with The Lost Weekend in 1945 that older brother W. Lee decided to come out to Hollywood and, you know, try his own luck at this game. I guess, so, Billy Wilder, the famous one, his... Real name is Samuel Wilder, but his mom always called him Billy, which usually is short for William. Yeah. His older brother's name is William Wilder. 
So I just have to imagine that, like, W. Lee's plan was, like, to be the transmorphers of the Wilder family. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh... I'm William Wilder. Oh, yeah, the guy who did Lost Weekend? Oh, yeah, that was a good movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so he came out to uh, Hollywood. Uh, w. Lee had a son, Miles Wilder, who grew up in Hollywood and went to UCLA for film and television writing. And so W. Lee, his son Miles, and their friend, William Rayner, got together and founded their own production company called Planet Filmways Incorporated. And so the deal with Planet Filmways is W. Lee would produce and direct, and then Miles and William Rayner would write the scripts. Planet Filmways then signed a... Um, funding for distribution deal with United Artists where United Artists would put up the money for the Planet Filmways movies and then United Artists would make that money back distributing them. And the the intent here was never to make the kind of movies Billy Wilder was making. Yeah. Uh, they're producing low-budget B-movies here yeah. that you can easily turn a profit on. The Snow Creature. Right. At first... Um, their genre was crime noir movies, sure. um, but they entered into the sci-fi trend with Phantom from Space in 1953, which is a movie about FCC agents tracking down an invisible alien. <laughs> invisible, so you don't have to actually, like, put money into the costume. Right. They followed this up with Killers from Space in 1954, which is a low-budget alien invasion movie where we get to stop the aliens before their invasion happens so we don't have to show you the invasion. Nice. The Snow Creature was Planet Filmway's next project right after Killers from Space, and it was Miles Wilder's first script without co-writing uh, with William Rayner, so his first script solo. There's a character in the movie, uh, Lieutenant Dunbar, who is a reference to a character of the same name in Billy Wilder's 1953 film, Stalag 17, which was very popular. Okay. Um, I don't know if he's actually meant to be the same guy, but it definitely continues these guys' like, weird business <laughs> strategy of being off-brand Wilders. Do you know what Billy Wilder thought of this? I don't, but, like, it must be so weird to just be like, oh, yeah, my older brother and my nephew, like, have built a career off of the fact that I'm famous. Yeah, probably makes Thanksgivings a little awkward. But, I mean, that's everyone in the Kardashian family at the end of the day. Like, I guess. You know, they're all just famous for being related to each other, who are then famous for being related to each other. Like, it, uh, anyways... The film's star is Paul Langton, who was a 41-year-old actor who had been acting in Hollywood since the early 40s and would continue to act for many, many years after this, and whose career is a lot of, like, supporting roles in war and western movies, where, like, he's not like John Wayne, but he's like, you know, the, the sheriff's second deputy or the general's, like, third lieutenant or whatever, yeah. right? So he's probably super excited about this. He's the star. <laughs> he's 100% like one of those, like, handsome but totally cardboard Hollywood actors. Oh, David Manners. Sure, sure, sure. 
He's going to be in a lot of other sci-fi B-movies throughout the 50s after this. Um, but he's probably best remembered, if for anything, for his role on the 1964-1969 TV soap opera version of Peyton Place. Also featured in this movie is actor Teru Shimada, who was a Japanese-American actor. He plays a Sherpa guide in this movie, and all of the, like, Sherpa in this movie speak Japanese. Like, they're just speaking Japanese to each other. Well, at least it's not a made-up language, I guess. Sure. Teru Shimada was born in Japan in 1905 and came to America in 1924 because he wanted to be a movie star. With the rise of talking pictures, he took English and speech classes, and he appeared in many films throughout the 1930s, often in, like, servile roles. Um, he actually played a servant in Revolt of the Zombies oh. way back when. Being a first-generation Japanese-American living on the West Coast, during World War II, he was interred at yeah. the Poston internment camp in southern Arizona. Um, this, of course, interrupted his acting career. Um, he was pretty popular at the camp and, like, led, like, a theater group uh, at the camp, but, like, just, you know, still hated it there, obviously. Yeah. And after the war and his release, he found it extremely difficult to find work. His big break came in 1949, when he was cast in the Humphrey Bogart film Tokyo Joe, which is about occupation-era Japan. Bogey plays Joe, and Shimada plays Ito, who's Bogey's, like, Japanese friend. Um, sort of the, like, Sam of this movie. Sure. Um, and he's probably best remembered in that movie for having a judo match with Bogart where he wins. Um, so he always liked to talk about, like, how he's the guy who beat Humphrey Bogart in a movie, in a fair fight. <laughs> His career really picked up after that with a lot of roles throughout the 1950s and uh, 60s, usually in war pictures uh, about World War II. Uh, he's possibly best remembered today as the villainous Mr. Ozato in the 1967 James Bond film You Only Live Twice. Okay. And he passed away in 1988. The role of Lieutenant Dunbar which was played by Don Taylor in Stalag 17. Uh, here is played by William Phipps, who was a 32-year-old uh, journeyman actor uh, who is probably best remembered today as the voice of Prince Charming in Cinderella in 1950. <laughs> Prince Charming has hardly any lines. Yes, and a very generic voice. Yeah. Uh, very bland. <laughs> I'm Prince Charming. Yeah, he is. he is one of the blandest. I think... The prince from Snow White probably has him beat for blandness, but, like, yeah. it's a it's a tight race. He appeared in a lot of movies throughout his career, mostly westerns and war pictures. Um, he actually appears in both War of the Worlds and Invaders from Mars. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. The film's Yeti is played by 7'7 actor Locke Martin, who is best remembered as Gort from The Day the Earth Stood Still. Okay. Uh, but he was also one of the mutants from Invaders from Mars. Yeah, I guess if you have a height of, like, seven foot four, whatever the fuck, like, you can get roles based on that. Yeah. Not and necessarily, like... Only that, basically. Yeah. 
The film's cinematographer, Floyd Crosby, was 55 years old when this film was made. His first film as a director of photography was in 1931. It was F.W. Murnau's final film, Taboo, A Story of the South Seas, for which Crosby won the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Oh, wow. Yeah, can you imagine that? Like, winning the Oscar, like, your first time at bat? Um, He shot a lot of other movies throughout his career. He was the DOP for High Noon in 1952, for which he won a Golden Globe. And he had 127 other cinematography credits until 1967, when he retired, uh, including many future horror films. Uh, A lot of the Edgar Allan Poe films of Roger Corman, for instance. What's he doing here? Um, I'm not sure. Just needed some work, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Floyd Crosby is also the father of David Crosby from the rock and roll band The Birds and the supergroup Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. All right, that's neat. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, like, boomer men are excited right now. <laughs> uh, and he passed away in 1985. So, The Snow Creature was released in November of 1954, the first of several Abominable Snowman pictures to come. It got very negative reviews, of which the (laughs) leading consensus among them is that the movie is very dull. Sure. This just, like, Yeti feels like people are like, well, we have all of these ape costumes from the ape boom in the 30s. Let's just dye them white, I guess? Yeah. Uh... So I, I'm not lo- really looking forward to these. I, I have a feeling they're going to be boring. That's apparently the consensus on this one. Um, one of the trivia points on the IMDb trivia page, and this, I don't think this is trivia. This is like definitely just someone throwing shade, is 60% of this movie consists of people walking around mountains. <laughs> it might... Not surprise you to learn that this movie is in the public domain. Really? Yeah, so it's on our YouTube playlist. Great. Well, folks, if you do want to watch along, uh, you can head to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com to find that playlist. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Snow Creature from 1954, directed by Willie Lee Wilder. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Snow Creature from 1954, directed by W. Lee Wilder. Oh, God. Thank God that's over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Don't watch this one. No. I mean, if you already have... I'm sorry. Well, I'm glad we had some company on the journey, (laughs) but this one you can skip. Uh, Probably. Like, it has some interesting things. Mm. I will give it credit for a couple things. Yeah. So, this movie is an hour and ten minutes long. Here's what happens in it. (laughs) So, our lead character is Frank Parrish, 
and he is on an expedition for the Cori Foundation looking for rare plant life in the Himalayas. Basically, like, how high up in the mountains can you go and still find plants, and what are they like, right? He has hired a bunch of Sherpas to serve as guides. The lead one is named Subra, and then he has a photographer who I think is supposed to be British, whose name is Peter Wells. Who speaks in an American accent, but keeps saying Englishisms, Britishisms, like, yeah. oh, oh boy. Yeah, he's, he's, it's, it's sort of like... Listen, old boy, I blo- need my scotch. Bloody hell, those natives sure have uh, stolen the lorry to go around the bend. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, the point is, they're setting off on this expedition. Subra's the leader because he's the only Sherpa who can also speak English. They set off from the town of Shikar. Um, they're coming from the India side of the Himalayas towards the Tibet side. The Sherpas in this movie, like real life Sherpas, and this is a little crude, but if you've never seen a Sherpa person, they sort of have like a roughly Asian appearance, but with like more of an Indian skin tone. Um, the Sherpas in this movie are all just played by Japanese people, and when they speak... What's supposed to be their language, they just speak Japanese. Which, like, is fine unless you are kind of familiar with some common phrases in Japanese. Yeah, like they like answer answering the... the phone with Moshi Moshi. Yeah, exactly. And saying hi for yes. yes. Yeah. Which, like, if you've watched anime, you should be familiar with some of those phrases. And so it will be a little odd yes. watching this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like, wait. Where are we? Who yeah, it's so, is The this? Sherpas are so consistently portrayed as Japanese. Yeah. So they head out into the mountains. And seven minutes into the movie, Subra's wife, Tala, who was left behind at Shikar, uh, she gets taken by the Yeti. The Yeti in this movie is just... Okay, so imagine a seven-foot-tall guy, and he's wearing, like, a shirt made of hair... And then has big, huge oven mitts made of hair. And then, like, pants and boots made of hair. And then, you know, we never really get a good look at his face, but he's just... It's a little bit like a wolfman outline. Yeah, of the hair around his face. He's just a very hairy guy. In long shots, he looks like a seven-foot man wearing one of those, like, body suits? Yeah, just wearing, like, a onesie. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that they just hot glued... Super glued yeah, the fur hair, onto. The fur is very patchy. Oh, um, there are It's so bad. There are a few different shots of the Yeti throughout the movie, um, but most shots of the Yeti are actually the same shot. It's a shot of him coming out of the blackness towards camera. And then if he's leaving the scene, they just reverse that footage. Um, <laughs> if they want close-ups, they just sort of, you know, crop that footage. Uh, so Tala gets taken into the night by the Yeti. Uh, Subra comes to Parrish and Wells. He's been informed of his wife's kidnapping by Yeti because his brother, who was still in Shikar, alerted a bunch of people, and they came up into the mountains to find the expedition to tell Subra. And Subra's like, hey, my wife's been abducted by the Yeti. Let's, I need to go find her. And the reaction of Parish and Wells is the Yeti doesn't exist. Go back to sleep. And, and listen. The guy's like, but my wife. And they're like, 
But the Yeti doesn't exist, Subra. I, I just don't see it. I just don't see it, Subra. And here's the thing. Okay, fine. Let's say the Yeti doesn't exist. Subra's wife is still missing. And being that casually dismissive of it is not going to get you anywhere. Um, which it doesn't. Um, Subra steals their guns, shoots their radio machine, and takes control of the expedition and is like, okay, we're going to look for my wife. So they continue to climb up the mountains following Yeti footprints. 28 minutes into the movie, there's a storm coming in, and so they seek shelter from the storm in a cave. Uh, Inside the cave, they find, uh, after some wandering, a necklace that belongs to Tala. Uh, so Subra's like, cool, like the Yeti must be in here. She must be in here. 33 minutes into the movie, they find the Yeti. Tala's nowhere to be seen. The Yeti is here with like a, a lady Yeti and a baby Yeti. We don't get a good look at any of them. They're way off in the distance of the shot when they find them. Seeing the expedition coming, the male Yeti decides to start a cave-in to cut off the expedition from his family. Instead, it lands on his family, killing his wife and... or killing his mate and child and... We don't know what Yeti marriage looks right. like. Killing his mate and child and burying him near dead under the rocks. So, uh, Super's like, cool, I'm gonna kill this Yeti because presumably it did something to my wife. Um, they make a big point in this movie of, like, the Yeti live in the high Himalayas and that's why no one sees them and they come down into the low country to steal women and it's just like women that's their motivating factor but we we see or at least they say Th that there a... are female yeti yeah um and so was that Tala did she is it like a werewolf like you get bit yeah no there's no there's no explanation there's yeah there's no where the Yeti come from, what their deal is. Where do they go? Right. Where do they come from, Yeti I Joe? <laughs> it's not elaborated on. Um, the implication of why they come and take your women is there, but ultimately that turns out to be nothing. Uh, so Subaru wants to kill the Yeti, and Parrish is like, no, we're going to bring it back alive. Um, because basically this expedition kind of turned into a bit of a wash, and it was funded by the Cory Foundation. So Parrish's idea is like, well, if I bring back a Yeti, it'll make up for everything, right? How, how this has gone. So they bring the Yeti down the mountain. Uh, so 37 minutes into the movie, they arrive back at Shikar. They uh, make a bunch of arrangements to take the Yeti back to America. The photographer, Wells, is like, hey, why are we taking the Yeti back to America? Like, this is a lot of trouble. Like... Parrish has, like, a fridge sent over that he can put the Yeti in for the plane <laughs> ride back. Just all these arrangements. He's like, you know, we can sell the Yeti here for a couple grand. I can sell the photos I took of the Yeti for several hundred dollars, and we can just split it, and that's the end of it. And Parrish is like, no, I came out here for the Cory Foundation. They deserve for me to bring something back for them. Uh, so this seems to be setting up some kind of conflict between Wells and Parrish, uh, but that's the last we ever see of Wells. Meanwhile, Subra is like, hey, I know we've got this Yeti captive, but we really have no way of knowing if this is even the Yeti that took Tala, and we still haven't found Tala. And Parrish is like, yeah, it does suck what happened to your wife, so I'm not going to press charges against you for um, kidnapping, kidnapping us. us and taking over the expedition. Subra's like, thanks, and that's the last we see of Subra. <sighs> 43 minutes into the movie, we're in America, we're offloading the Yeti in the big fridge, uh, but there's a problem. 
with customs and immigration <laughs> because the United States government doesn't know if the Yeti should be classified as a animal or a person. If it's an animal, then it goes through customs, but if it's a person, it has to go through immigration. And so Parrish is like, no, it's definitely an animal. And the officials at the airport are like, right, but your photographer who came back like ahead of you testified that he called it a snowman. So that implies it's a human. So we're going to have an expert flown in to examine the creature <sighs> to make an assertion. You know, the thing that I, I've been missing from all of these horror movies is bureaucratic red tape. Mm-hmm. 47 minutes into the movie, the monster gets loose from the refrigeration unit. Uh, he basically just shakes it until it falls over and then pops the door open. Uh, the guard who was on duty gets attacked by the Yeti. But he's uh, fine. He's fine. The Yeti basically slaps him over the head and the guard falls down and the Yeti gets away and then the guard gets back up and sounds the alarm. So, with the Yeti on the loose, the LAPD is notified. Uh, the next 15 minutes of the movie is the Yeti wandering around L.A. killing people. Um, One person. That's right. He kills a woman in an alley he goes after another woman who takes shelter in a department store. He does find his way to, like, a butcher's, which makes sense because of, like, needing the cold, because they are in L.A. now. But also the meat. Yeah, and he spooks the butchers there. So the police throw just a ton and ton of, like, officers into the area to try and, like, get the Yeti, and they can't find him. This is represented by lots and lots of stock footage of cop cars driving around. While Frank Parrish has been joined at police headquarters by Lieutenant Dunbar, who's in charge of the manhunt for the Yeti. And they just kind of sit at Dunbar's office all night listening to reports come in. Dunbar, his wife is in the hospital uh, about to give birth to a baby. So he's waiting for two phone calls. Either the baby gets born or they find the Yeti. Uh, but they sit around in his office. It's important that we as a horror audience know this information. Mm -hmm. uh, an hour into the movie, they figure out that the monster has been moving around using the storm drains, and that's why it's able to move around L.A. Uh, unseen. It intuitively figured out that the storm drains are cooler than the outside. So the police and Parrish go down into the sewers uh, for some third man action. An hour and eight minutes into the movie, they find the Yeti and kill it. And then... Parrish and Dunbar go back to Dunbar's car, and Dunbar gets the call that his kid's been born. The end. And then they drive to the hospital. Right. So, you <sighs> may have noticed me, like, giving those time indexes. This movie's an hour and ten minutes long. What was happening in between each of those points was absolutely nothing. Going to point A. Going to point B. Going back to point A, going to point B, C, D, going back to point C, B, yeah. A. This it's like the flight back to America. Yes. We see the full flight. Right. So like here's here's like this movie has maybe twenty minutes of story in it. Yeah. And they are using every trick in the book to drag it out to an hour. So for example, the Half hour it takes to find the Yeti in the Himalayas is, like, we see them walking up the mountains. We see them making camp for the night. We'll usually get, like, a short scene at night of, like, the wind howling and someone going, what was that? 
oh, it was just the wind and going back to sleep. Then we see them walking up the mountain the next day. We see them make camp again. There's some stuff going on after Subra takes over the uh, expedition about, like, trying to get the radio working to, like, call for the police. None of it ever goes anywhere. Like, none of the things that they use to fill time ever amount to anything. It's just to fill time. And it's obvious. Yes, it's very obvious time filling. And, like... You know, I, I mentioned that they go into the cave 28 minutes in, and they find the Yeti 33 minutes in. The intervening five minutes are just walking through the tunnels of the cave, and they've got one tunnel. They're just showing you the expedition walking back and forth up and down the same hallway of tunnel over and over again. They use the same shots over and over again. Sometimes they'll reverse them, sometimes they'll mirror them to make them look like different shots. But, like, this movie makes... Invaders from Mars look restrained in how often it just uses the same shots of people walking through areas. Yeah. They've yeah. got, for the, when the Yeti's on the loose in LA, it's clear they got permission to shoot in like one, on one street. And so all the places the Yeti hits are actually this same street, but the LAPD can't find him. Nope. When he's down in the storm drains, like they go down into the drains at an hour, they find the Yeti at an hour eight. Those eight minutes are just the same, like, three to four shots of the cops walking around the same, like, little cul-de-sac of sewer, and then the same shot of the Yeti coming out of the darkness and going back into the darkness. Are they in danger? Nope, he's receding into the darkness. Are they in danger? He's coming back out? Nope, he's going back in. And yeah, like the... Like Sarah said about the airplane flight, like something you'll notice a lot if you go back to watch old movies is that they don't do ellipses of action as often as modern movies. You know, in a modern movie, someone would be like, they would tie the Yeti up in the Himalayas, be like, let's get him back to America. We would cut to... Hey, we're back in America. Right. You see this in King Kong. Um, Old movies will sometimes, you know, show you if a guy's going from point A to point B, him getting in his car, show you a shot of the car driving and a shot of the car arriving, and we wouldn't take the time for that in a modern movie. So in a movie of this vintage, if someone's on a plane ride, I would sort of expect a shot of the plane taking off, then a shot of the plane in the air, then a shot of the plane landing. That would still be filler, but that's sort of the expected filler for a film of this vintage. This vintage and of this quality. Right. What we get here is like a shot of the plane taking off, then a shot of the plane flying over some mountains, so you know we're leaving Tibet, then a shot of the plane flying over like some desert, so you know that we're flying over the Middle East, then a shot of the plane flying over some water, so you know we're flying over the ocean, then a shot of the plane flying over New York, so you know we're in North America now, then a shot of the plane flying over some desert again, so you know we're passing over the middle of the United States, and then a shot of the plane landing on the tarmac. And that's everything in this movie. When they put out an APB on the monster, like Dunbar picks up the phone and he's like, put out an APB on a seven foot tall hairy guy. And then we see (laughs) like a girl in the telephone switchboard office, like take that call, then like write down the APB bulletin on a piece of paper, then put that in a tube and stick it in one of those pneumatic tube things. And then we see like a, police communications officer get the tube open it unravel it read the apb and then start talking on the like announcement thing about the apb then we see people turning on their tvs and radios to listen to the apb like 
everything that happens in this movie, you get every single step of, while meanwhile our characters just sit around in rooms, like, chit-chatting about the weather. The weather and that baby that's coming. Right. It's just so tiresome. It's very tedious. It's a very tedious movie. You could cut it down to nothing, practically. So, you can kind of tell that I did not like this movie. Here are the things that I did like. Okay. The movie has a little bit of a cold open with Parrish giving, like, his, like, research notes or, like, narrating his expedition, the start of it. Yeah. Um, you know, and the the cold air of the Himalayas, like, blah, blah, blah. And then we get the title card of the snow creature, and then he continues giving his narration. And it feels very documentary style. Yes. Like, the, the start of the movie really has like a, we're trying to convince you this is like real. Yeah. Except for the snow creature title coming up. Yeah. Um, even when they're leaving Shakar for the first time, like the way it's shot and everything feels like a documentary. And I thought that was very interesting because everything about the Yeti has been in the news, like the daily yes. mail having its own expedition. It's like they're trying to do this verisimilitude yeah. thing, which has been done well in previous movies, like Think From Another World or other movies that we've watched around this time period. And movies like that were, you know, documentary crews following an expedition as it went up Everest or went to the South Pole or went wherever were not uncommon. That was like a genre of movie back then. So this would have been understood within that context. Yeah. So I thought that was a very interesting way to start it. Yeah. One of the neat things about this movie that I will give it some credit for, although it's maybe not the movie's fault, it's very low budget. That's really obvious watching it. Yeah. There's an interesting, like, bell curve of how budgets translate into whether you're shooting on location or not in movies. So your average low budget movie isn't going to go out into the mountains. They're going to have, like, a really bad indoor set of some styrofoam rocks and like a backdrop of mountains that they're going to walk by several times. And if there's any long shots of people going up a mountain, that's stock footage. That's stock footage, yeah. And then if you get like a high budget movie, we're going out to the actual Himalayas to film. This movie is so low budget, they can't afford sets. So they have to go on location. And that's like, it's just this interesting thing. Like, if you get to a really low budget in movies, you'll be seeing real locations because they can't afford sets. Yeah. Your budget goes up and you can afford sets. You're definitely going to use sets rather than real locations because real locations are really finicky. And then if you're way higher budget again, you'll be back on real locations because you can afford finicky, right? So when they're going through the mountains, like, I don't know where they shot it, but they must have gone pretty high up into the, like, California Rockies, Because they're up where it's cold, there's wind, there's snow blowing, and it's clearly real. They're clearly actually outside. It's consistent enough of, like, who's traveling up there. Yeah, it's not stock footage. You can tell it's them. And, you know, it's maybe one hillside that they're walking up over and over again from separate angles and then walking down over and over again from separate angles. But, like, they went out and did it. And so I give them credit for that. Yeah, same Um, with the sewers. Yes, and that's what I was getting to. Yeah, same with the sewers. When we go down to the sewers, like, this is not a movie that had the budget to build sewer sets. So when they go down there, like, they're down there in the actual L.A. sewers. And, yeah, they're maybe in the same four tunnels over and over again, which 
I can kind of understand you don't really want to be going very far afield in the real sewers. <laughs> but the fact that we're really down there is made clear by the fact that the only lighting down there is everybody's flashlights and lanterns. Like, when people turn the corner, we're just in blackness. Like, they don't have any lights set up down there because they couldn't, right? So that's kind of cool. Those are some things I'll give the movie credit for. I don't think they're on purpose. Like, I don't think it was a conscious, creative choice to be like, well, in order to ground this fantastical story, we'll have everything be shot in the real world so that, like, the Yeti feels all the more grounded in reality. Like, I think it was we don't have any money. Yeah. But it's neat. Yeah, that's the other thing I liked about this movie. Yeah. That's it. That's all I liked. If you want a crash course into how to drag your movie's runtime out to an hour if all you had was 20 minutes, you can look at this movie. I here's guess. Here's some tips from the snow creature on how to drag out your movie's runtime. Every time you film your characters walking somewhere, film them walking back the other way, too. Yeah, you have the location. Right. There, everything's already set up. Right. That's economical. Yes. Create contextless shots that then can be inserted into whatever scenes are necessary. Uh, Need a close-up of your villain? Try using the same close-up every time. Yeah, nothing builds tension like that same shot. Also building tension, out of nowhere have people go, what was that? Oh, it was nothing. Yeah, just to remind people that something could happen that would be exciting at any time. But it's not going to happen. No. You know those pedants who are like, oh, you never see them go to the bathroom in movies. So if there's any parts in the movie that you feel like you need to drag things out, think about all the boring step-by-step -step procedures your characters would have to go through that they normally don't show in, like, big-budget movies. Like the immigration process. Right, or having to, like, arrange for travel for your monster, and what uh, exact step-by-step -step things you would need to arrange for that. And, you know, as part of that, you maybe you have to arrange for a giant refrigerator. Maybe we show you going back to Bombay, getting the fridge, and then, and then heading back to Shikar. Yeah, to put the monster in the fridge. Is there anything procedural in your movie? Police procedures, airplane procedures, uh, anything at all? Show every step of the procedure. Someone's making a telephone call? Show them pick up the phone, dial the number, make the call, the switchboard operator connect their call, the other person's phone ring, that person pick up the phone, have them exchange some, like, pleasantries and idle chit-chat for a bit, and then cut to something completely different, because that scene served no purpose. Alternatively, if you can't afford to have someone else on the other end of the line, have the person have the phone, say, yes, I need this and this. Excellent. Right. Hang up. Turn to the other person in the room and say, yep, we've arranged to have this and this. Excellent. One thing I noticed about this movie, so this movie's very obviously divided into like a two-act structure, right? There's wandering around the Himalayas and there's wandering around LA, right? And that's very clearly like a King Kong-esque structure. Yeah. Um, one thing that's very noticeable about this two-act structure is other than Frank Parrish, none of the characters from Act 1 survive into Act 2. That implies that they died. They didn't. Right. None of the actors... There's no action. Yeah. None of the actors continue into Part 2. Subra's storyline doesn't go anywhere. 
Wells' storyline doesn't go anywhere. Who knows what happened to his wife? Yeah. Parrish himself actually serves no purpose in the second half either. He delivers the creature, and then he's only hanging around the airport to, like, deliver testimony as to whether the creature is man or beast, and he's having to wait for this expert to arrive, and then the creature gets out. And presumably he's, like, going around with the police after that because, you know, he's the guy who caught the creature and he's the expert on it, but he's really not able to offer any help. Yeah. Uh, he, he does They're figure like, out... Can you give us any information that would help? Uh, well, he would like the cold. Thanks. I never would have thought that the snow creature would like something that's cold. Yeah, he's seven feet tall, covered in hair, and he likes high altitudes and cold temperatures. Well, it's L.A., so it's low altitudes and warm temperatures. Um, he does... Parrish is the one who figures out the storm drain thing, but that's not because of any specific ability or knowledge that Parrish has. He just happens to look outside the window in time to see, like, a street sweeper sweep some trash into a storm drain. And he's like, huh, storm drains do exist. Yeah. Yeah. Frank Parrish is an awful person. Yes. I mean, if you couldn't tell from the plot summary, yes. So, not only is he like, oh, Supra, your wife is missing? Well, the Yeti doesn't exist go back to bed and just completely, like, Mm -hmm. doesn't care. Mm -hmm. The next scene, we get his voiceover of being like, I could tell Supra was feeling very resentful of this. And it's like, yeah, no fucking shit. Yeah. His wife is missing. Yeah. And he just completely belittled it. He also refers to the men that Supra brought along as human mules. Yeah. It is in the context of a sentence that's something along the lines of talking about how much weight and luggage they can carry, but it's still a bit of a yikes. Yeah. That whole conflict mm. did not need to be there. Right. Like, like you could have, have had... be like, oh yeah, well, we'll go looking for your wife, um, but let's wait till morning. And if you wanted to have some kind of, like, conflict with that. Um, but no, it's just, it's just serving to villainize these people who, like... Are supposed to be our heroes. Are supposed to be our heroes, um, it villainizes the guides right. um, who, like, given the context of them being played by Japanese people, makes it uncomfortable for me of, like, uh, villainizing Asian people. Sure. I mean, it, it would be uncomfortable regardless, even if they had, because it's still, like, creating this, like, white people versus people of color hierarchy thing, right? And, like, the idea of, like, oh, you can't trust them. They have a line of, like, don't give them any alcohol because then we won't be able to, like... Control them. Control them or expect them to do any work. Like, yeah. it's it's bad. And, yeah, you're totally right about the fact that, like, the conflict between Parrish and Subra doesn't go anywhere because they still end up looking for the Yeti anyways. They still end up finding the Yeti anyways. They still end up taking the Yeti back to America anyways, right? So, I mean, you could have made your lead character look like a good dude by being like, oh, Subra, I don't know if it's the, if, if it's a snowman, but I know that there's like bears and other things up here. It could have taken her. We should really get out and look for her right away. You're absolutely right. The plants can wait. Yeah. You know, and then just have him go look and it would have changed nothing about the story at all. Yeah. You know, and then, yeah. And then he's kind of like a dick to Wells the whole time too. Yeah. Like the only person he's not a, complete dick to is like lieutenant dunbar his like police cop buddy for the second half of the movie and even dunbar doesn't really like him because at the end of the movie when dunbar's kid is born he's like 
hey, Parrish, I've been hanging out with you all night. What the fuck's your first name? He's like, Frank. And Dunbar's like, ah, maybe I'll name my kid Frank Dunbar. Has a nice ring to it, huh? And Parrish is like, yeah, I think I like the sound of it. And Dunbar's like, well, I don't. And then that's (laughs) how the movie ends. That was great. That was like, yeah, awesome. It was also great because it was finally over. Yes. So, yeah, you have an unlikable lead character. It's boring. It's repetitive. The monster sucks. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, it's... Even the guy playing the creature, like, he's not doing any kind of, like physical acting. He's just kind of standing there and walking around in the suit. The only times that he's like, quote-unquote, menacing is when it's the one shot of coming out of the shadows towards the camera. And that's really only because he's coming out of the shadows and he's sort of hunched over because the camera's low angle. Yeah. Right? Otherwise, he's just walking around like a person. Yes, there's no performance here at all. Yeah, it's bad. And, And we barely, most of the time we don't see the monster do anything. The guy who's the guard when he breaks out of the refrigerator unit, that's the one time we actually see the monster attack somebody. Every other time, it's basically we hear a scream off camera, and then we go to find a body. The wild thing is, is in a lot of the cases where we hear a scream off camera and go to find the body, it's the scream of a character who we haven't yet been introduced to yet. Like, it's not like we see someone, they look at something, we hear a scream, we go to a body... Oftentimes, a scene will just begin. At the sound of a scream. Yes, and then, like, show us this body. Yeah, it's yeah. very incompetent filmmaking. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Do you think this is a horror movie? I think it's a horrible movie, but <laughs> I don't know if it's a horror movie. Because of its emphasis on, uh, for lack of a better word, like, the procedure of things, and going here, and going there, and taking its sweet bloody time to do that it loses any kind of tension or thrills or dread that someone may have been feeling so i think if it is a horror movie it fails terribly um to the point where i would hesitate to put it on the list well this is the thing so we can't say that because a movie failed at being a horror movie it's not a horror movie right because that would disqualify a lot of movies (laughs) right if it's if it has to actually be scary to be a horror movie a lot of movies on the list would come off it's about intention do you think this movie was intended as a horror movie even if it fails as such because there are stretches of it especially the himalayas stretch that feels more like an adventure movie um and you know and the structure is so very king kong like what brings it more into seeming like it's intended as a horror movie is the fact that the monster is like a very one-on-one monster. He comes out of the shadows and then takes you and kills you and it's mysterious and there's, you know, murder after murder after murder kind of slasher monster kind of style. Well, like I said, there's only one murder. But two if you count Tala. Yeah. I also, there was like a cop that he attacks. I guess the cop was fine, right? Yeah. In the sewer? Yeah. Yeah, he got up. But, like, it's tough because the two-act structure kind of turns this into two different movies. What do you think the intent of the movie is? Adventure film? Horror film? It's, it's, regardless, it's a monster movie. That much is clear. Yeah. And when the movie's this bad and this incompetent, it also becomes hard to judge the intent of the creators because you aren't sure of the genuineness of the creators like 
because if you're saying, okay, well, it's too, it's not horror because it's bad. Well, but was it trying to be horror? Well, then answering that question, you have to ask yourself, well, what is it trying to be? And in a movie like this, it's almost hard to believe that it's trying to be anything. You almost imagine like a producer's esque situation <laughs> where they're just making crap for the sake of it. It it fails to do this, but it tries to build tension throughout the movie. Yes. In the Himalayas, it's the what was that? Mm-hmm. Or it was the wind. Or even when they're doing the expedition during the day, like at one point the Yeti is like causing like a an avalanche where there's like the threat of the the snowstorm mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, when they're wandering through the cave, it's like, oh, now we're splitting up. Oh, no. And it's supposed to be tense. Yes. Even in L.A., like, the reason we keep seeing the shot of the snow creature coming out of the dark and then going back in is because it's like, oh, are they in danger? He's coming at them. Nope, he's retreating. Um, so I think the intent was a horror movie, given yeah. that consistent attempt yeah, I think you're right. I think it, it sometimes feels like the movie's trying to trick us into thinking there's suspense and tension happening when there isn't any. Um, but I think you're right. The fact that that's what the movie is doing means it's 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 announcing itself as a horror movie, even if it's not succeeding at any of it. Where would you like to rank this, then? If we're ranking it, um, I have a spot picked out. Number 159. So below House of Mystery and above Torture Ship. The reason I decided on this spot was this movie's biggest problem is that it's boring, right? Like you said, it's going through the motions and it's trying to do all these things, but it doesn't really know how to do them, so it's boring. Um, House of Mystery, a step above that, is slightly less boring because it is kind of bonkers. It's so bonkers that the movie needs to have a five-minute scene at the end explaining the plot to you. True. Below that is Torture Ship, which is nearly unintelligible as a film. The filmmaking is so incompetent. And the filmmaking here is incompetent, but I always know what's happening in the story because they'll be sure to explain it to me. Sure. I was also looking in this area. Sure. Um, What's the... This is, by the way, listeners, the... The bottom of the barrel of the list. What's the lowest on the list? Uh, Son of Ngagi at number 161. Right. So we're we're right close to the bottom here. So I'll put forward that Torture Ship wasn't really boring. Mm, sure. Like, Fair. you had convicts on a ship that were being experimented on. Mm-hmm. Um, it had ideas. It had ideas. It just didn't know how to do anything with them. Yeah. Condemned to Live right below that also had ideas of, like, can only attack in the dark or whatever. Yeah, and the idea of, like, making the vampire kind of sympathetic and the, you know, village is persecuting him. Um, no, they similarly did not have the skills in filmmaking to pull that off. Mm-hmm. But it was a, a an interesting idea that we hadn't quite, a, like, seen before. The sympathetic right. vampire, like, fully sympathetic. Sure. Dracula has, you know, sympathetic moments. Son of Ngagi is more akin to the snow creature, mm. in my mind. So I was feeling, honestly, above Ngagi, below Condemned to Live, so at 161. Sure. Yeah, Condemned to Live is really boring, though, too. It um, is. 
it it that's a movie with basically three scenes in it, and then everything else is filler taking us between those three scenes. But like, so it's tough. You know, if we're talking about new ideas, this is the first Yeti movie. Yeah, but replace Yeti and the location with like um, man, ape, and the jungle. Right. There's nothing. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing new structurally and narratively going on. Absolutely. But they are picking up on that Yeti trend. They're right. the first to get there. So I think they deserve a little bit of credit for that. It's tough down here because a lot of these movies are bad for similar yet different reasons. Yeah. The reason why Torture Ship is incompetent as filmmaking is because it doesn't explain to you what's happening and the cuts are really hard to follow and it just feels like you're missing stuff all the time and, you know, that they don't really know how to edit things together to let you understand how a scene is flowing. This movie is incompetent filmmaking because it's the exact opposite. It's over-explaining everything. It's showing you too much stuff. It's going to great detail to show you how we got from point A to point B. And so it's like, well, which is worse of those two? My feeling is that failing to explain the story is worse than over-explaining the story. That's that's kind of my gut feeling, which is why I thought higher than Torture Ship. But it, it is definitely a, a toss-up in this section. By over-explaining, they're undercutting the horror. And making this a a worse horror movie. That's fair, yeah. So not only just a worse movie, but just a worse horror movie. Yeah, because they're trying to have that suspense and tension like you described, but by wasting so much time faffing about on the details, you lose tension. And momentum. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. (sighs) Yeah, and I mean, the biggest problem with Condemned to Live, other than it being boring, is that their idea that the vampire can only attack in the dark is taken literally... So there are scenes of the movie that are just <laughs> literally blackness with no light. So you can't see what's happening. Oh, sorry. Just just remembering that movie is, is so fun. Um, he commits suicide at the end of that movie by jumping down a bottomless pit or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that's a better ending. This movie's ending, like, one of my big problems with this movie that I haven't yet said is that everything about this movie is so go through the motions, right? It's like, not only are they wasting your time with the filler, but you know what's going to happen when the filler ends anyways. Like, that's why the plot summary is, you know, they go to the Himalayas, they find a Yeti, they bring the Yeti back, the Yeti escapes, they look for the Yeti, they find the Yeti, they shoot the Yeti. That's it. That's really it. That's all that happens. Yeah. And they don't even have a line at the end of Twid's Beauty. <laughs> right. Beast. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, when they find the Yeti in the sewers... They throw a big net over him, and he's in the net, and, like, he's not really doing anything. Oh, he's, like, strangling the... He's trying to struggle, so they all crowd around him to stop him from struggling, which gives him the opportunity to start strangling Parrish, so then Dunbar shoots him. I'm good to go beneath Condemned to Live, because at least, yeah, that ending is better and show that they were, you know, trying for something. This movie is just... 100% paint by numbers. All right, so yeah, I'm with you, Sarah. Entering the list at the new number 161, second from the bottom, uh, which, that's a real whiplash from last week, Gojira going in at number three. 
Uh, it's The Snow Creature from 1954, directed by W. Lee Wilder. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, or suggest a movie that we may have missed or overlooked, you can reach us through our Ask box there. You can reach us directly through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever you like listening to your podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or a service that allows you to do so. You can also help the show out by sharing it with a friend, uh, whether that's IRL or over social media. Um, If you are talking to a friend about it IRL, wear a mask and stay two meters apart from them. (laughs) And if you have the financial ability to do so, we would also really appreciate you checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. And that helps go towards um, paying for our hosting on SoundCloud. Um, It also helps just, like, give us the time to do some of our bigger episodes, like last week's. The $5 and $10 level both get access to weekly bonus audio cut from past episodes. Every Halloween, we do a lot of special content for the Patreon. Uh, So you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast now to to take part in a poll if you're one of our patrons deciding what you would like to see for this year's content. Um, So if any of that interests you at all, head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, it's a little bit of a gear change. We're staying in colder climates, but uh, we are going back in time just a little bit to pick up on a movie that we missed oh. uh, that I was not previously aware of. It seems like it'll probably be really interesting. It's The White Reindeer from 1952. That, that sounds like a Christmas movie, Ben. It's a Finnish, This isn't Hark. It's a Finnish horror movie based on, like, indigenous Finnish folklore about a killer reindeer um if i understand the plot synopsis correctly a witch turns a woman into a vampiric were reindeer wow amazing so i'm i'm very excited to to check this out cool well we will see you next week creatures of the night bye bye